Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, February 8th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we're talking Lemonade's latest product offering. Bill.com had another stellar earnings report. We've got another fintech SPAC offering in the pipeline. We've got some more heavily shorted names in the financial space. And of course, we've got a couple of stocks for you to watch this coming week. Joining me this week, it's my man, certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything? Hey, it is a beautiful day here in South Carolina. Only one we're going to get this week, so it's a good day. <laughs> well, it must be contagious because it's a beautiful day up here in Northern Virginia. A little bit chilly, but it's it's uh, nice and sunny. So, so you know, one out of two ain't bad. Yeah. Um, Hope I get to come visit you guys sometime soon. Yeah, but yeah. I've been well, saying that since last March. Yeah, so. yeah. Who knows? I mean, it's just uh, who knows. That's that's about the best. About the best you're getting hit out of me, <laughs> Matt. I just <laughs> nobody knows. Um, Matt, I, let's let's open the show here. I want you to travel back in time with me to August 31st, 2020. That's when we did a show where we told our listeners these were the two stocks we personally each were getting ready to add to our portfolios. Those two stocks, as you probably know by now, were Lemonade and Bill.com. And Matt, I am happy to say that since then, as of market closed on Friday, your pick and your purchase, Lemonade, is up 147%. Now, not to be left out in the cold, my pick and my purchase, Bill.com, it's up 87%. But, you know, I mean, that's kind of like... (laughs) That that episode aged well. It aged well, like a fine (laughs) wine. (laughs) Well, Matt, we wanted to kick off the show today and talk about these two companies. We have some news in in regard to both companies here. Well, let's go ahead and kick it off with Lemonade, um, because it looks like they are going to be opening up a new product line here for their business. I mean, this is this is an insurance company that is they're they're really iterating and, and moving quickly, and they've got a new product line here that they're getting ready to launch. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, they're actually launching it right. If you go on Lemonade's website right now, you can buy you can apply for and buy term life insurance. It's it's up and running at this point. Just just happened. So. You, the Lemonade's done a great job of bringing their their AI kind of machine learning driven approach to insurance, but so far they've concentrated on relatively small areas of the insurance business. Renters insurance is their big one, um, <clears throat> and just to put this in perspective, renters insurance is about a three point eight billion dollar market in the United States. Um, they also do pet insurance, which is a one point seven billion dollars billion dollar industry. They do have a hand in the $100 billion uh, homeowner's insurance space, but renters seem to be their bread and butter at this point. It's not a giant market. Life insurance in the United States alone, and remember, Lemonade's international, life insurance alone is a $730 billion market. So the question in a lot of investors' minds, especially mine, is will Lemonade be able to replicate the success they've had with the renter's insurance market into term life insurance because it's a it's a tougher market to underwrite. There's a reason that life insurance is such a pain to buy. 
Um, I don't know if you've bought term life insurance, Jason. But well, I, you know, I have some sort of life insurance set up through my work, but uh, yeah, it's it's not something. Well, I, well then I, they did I, you I, a favor. Yeah, I know something. Of it. I've got I've got well, something, but we've also we're we're both my wife and I are working, so it's uh, a generally the process involves a lot of paperwork. You have to meet with an agent, which is a salesperson. Um, you know, they're trying to sell you a more expensive product in a lot of cases, so you feel like a lot of sales pressure. You have to submit to a medical exam. When I got term life insurance, a, a nurse had to come to my house and draw blood and take my weight and all kinds of – you know, it's it's an invasive process. Yikes. So it it's an industry that's just begging to be disrupted, but it's going to be a tough one to crack into really. So I'm curious to see because right now their application for term life is really easy. No medical exams, no nothing. Um, and it, they, you, they do it all through their AI technology and just – using the power of available information. For example, instead of actually doing a medical exam, they use my social, my social security number to access my medical records and see what medications I'm on, things like uh-huh. that. Yeah, so okay. if that really catches on, term life insurance, it's not only a big market, but it's one where the current players are not very user-friendly. So there's a lot of potential there. And I'm really excited to see in the next quarter or two, now that there's a a lemonade life button right on top of their website. I'm really curious to see how that plays out and how that is received by customers because that could be a game changer because, I mean, when I got homeowner's insurance and Jason, you're probably in the same boat. When I bought my house, I had to make a call and it took about 15 minutes and then I had a quote and paperwork came in the mail. It really wasn't that painful. Lemonade does it better, but the existing way of getting homeowners isn't terrible. Life insurance is not a fun process. So, I think this is a, it's going to be a really exciting and and this will be a a kind of stepping stone to see if they could eventually disrupt things like auto insurance and you know umbrella insurance and oh yeah you know, all these other little insurance markets that that could really make them a major player. So this is this is really their first big test and I'm curious to see how it goes. Don't you feel like in regard to insurance I mean it's it's, it's this funny it's this funny sort of disparity where is as investors I mean, generally speaking, we like insurance a lot as investments. I mean, because typically, well-run insurers. I mean, it's 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 a product, it's a service that everybody needs in some capacity, and well-managed insurance companies they they are they're using that money to their advantage. They're they're typically good investors too. I mean, I think of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger at Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, Tom Gaynor with Markel. I mean, those are two that really stand out to me immediately. Is is uh is is good money managers and, and and leaders who've been able to grow those businesses through years by making shrewd investments in in that portfolio using that float, and and I wonder you know I, I wonder with lemonade it, does that it feels like there's so much opportunity to disrupt the insurance business because so much of insurance is even even customers like we have insurance and yet you still really don't don't fully know what you have. Because it's all so confusing. I mean, it it really is. It's it's not something set up that's that's easy for the consumer to understand. It feels like that's a big opportunity for Lemonade to really clarify and simplify. Yeah, especially when it comes to the claims process. Right now, um, so you're in your house. Like, you know, what what happened? You know, heaven forbid, if your house flooded and you had to file an insurance claim, do you, would you readily know what to do? I mean, yeah, I would know to go straight to progressive.com and log into my account and then click the file a claim button. You know, I mean, I think I think at least that's where I know that's where I would start. But I mean, 
I would have to actually go through the documents and, and, and parse that language to figure out exactly what's covered and what we're on the hook right. for. And even then, um, it's not easy to fully understand. One, one thing I, I read, this, and this was a tweet, so this is like kind of hearsay, but a, a customer who has pet insurance through Lemonade filed a claim, and guess how long it took the claim to be processed and paid? Uh, I mean, it, through Lemonade? Yep. I'm hoping 24 hours. Six seconds. <laughs> All right. That, so, and, and that's just, you know, this this means that that customer knew exactly what was covered, exactly what was needed, knew exactly what documents they had to produce. It's it's just a really transparent process. One cool thing about Lemonade's business model is they take the any reasons to deny claims out of the equation. With most insurance companies, they don't, it's not in their best interest to pay out claims, right? I mean, if if you file a $50,000 claim for your homeowner's insurance, that $50,000 would come out of your insurer's pocket. With Lemonade, they pretty much lay off all the risk to, with reinsurance policies. So there's no reason to deny claims. It's not in their best interest to do so. It's They, they take 75% of the premiums they collect. They buy reinsurance policies that will cover whatever claims come in. And the other 25% is their their operating expenses and hopefully a profit. So it, it's a really co- very consumer-friendly business model. Anything left out of that 75% doesn't go back to Lemonade. That gets donated to charity, first of all, which is which really appeals to younger investors. So it's, it's not in any way in Lemonade's best interest to deny legitimate claims or to really drag or to drag out the claims process. Because remember, insurance companies make money the longer they keep that money sitting in, the, in, in their investments. So, it, so it's, it's in Lemonade's best interest to get the money out the doors to their customers as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, that that brings up a good question, I think, because you know, I used to work with a, I used to work with Travelers Insurance long before I, I moved up here to to start working with the Fool, and I was uh, for a little while I worked in, a, in an auto claims department, and and so the philosophy there was, let's do all the hard work on the front end here, investigate these claims correctly, thoroughly, and let's pay what we owe. The idea was that we didn't want to leave these claims outstanding and we didn't want them to go to subrogation or where you know insurance companies start fighting each other because one insurance company says they owe something and the other says they don't. And so then you have this long, drawn-out subrogation process that involves attorneys and just inflates those costs and ultimately those costs end up going back to the consumer in the form of higher premiums at some point or another. Um, I wonder with Lemonade, so so Lemonade gets a claim, they pay that claim out, and ultimately that responsibility then goes on to a reinsurer. Um, I just, I wonder, I guess I'm kind of wondering out loud here, I just wonder it, what, what kind of recourse does that reinsurer have when it comes to Lemonade? Like if a reinsurer goes back to Lemonade and says, hey, Lemonade, you shouldn't have paid this claim out, um, you know, then what happens? I guess I guess that's where really their their AI comes into play here. That's that's where right. that secret sauce really really so, benefits. So, them. the AI doesn't just let them, uh, you know, process applications and process claims quickly. It gives them a, an advantage when it comes to detecting unusual activity or fraud in 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 cases like. I, I don't know. I, I I mean, I'm not AI apparently. But of course, it, it, yeah, I'm not. You know, if if. It, they've put out a lot of cases on their website where they've been able to detect situations of fraud that you know human um, insurance representatives were not able to detect. So there's something to be said there. Like, you know, like, it does leave it a little susceptible to if you know anytime you're you're paying out claims quickly, there's going to be some element of fraud. 
Um, but you know, the AI is really, they're, they're doing a great job of detecting it and, 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 um, still getting people paid on time. So it, it's a really disruptive model so far. And the earlier results have been really, really strong. And I'm, if they can translate that to even a, you know, 1% of the life insurance market, that'd be a huge deal. Yeah. And I'd imagine as time goes on, it just, the system gets smarter and smarter. So, I mean, that really is certainly a lot of potential there. I can understand why they're trying to, to gain entry into those additional markets, because really that, that can help them scale up and give them a lot of capability. I mean, and that ultimately brings more data into their model and makes their AI smarter. Um, Matt, let me ask you a question here on Friday. I don't know if you saw, did you, did you get, I'm going to give you a guess. How, how, uh, Bill.com, what percentage do you think Bill.com shares finished up on the day on Friday? Uh, at one point, they were about 25% up. Ah, yes, they close? were. Yeah, they closed 32% up. So those returns that I was talking about at the intro of the show, a lot of those returns came just on that one day. <laughs> but hey, listen, I'm going to take them, all right? Whatever, right? It's, you know, sure. we're, we're not, the scorecard doesn't tell you how you got there. It just tells hey, you how much. Most of the lemonade gains came in December and January. So, <laughs> I, you know, it doesn't matter when. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, listen, Bill, Bill.com, I mean, a business that we talked about, of course, we've talked about a lot on this show. We talked about even before uh, that August show uh, where we picked those two stocks, but but they, they did uh, release earnings for their most recent quarter here. And it, it was it was a very well-received quarter. For those who, who don't remember or who don't, aren't familiar with Bill.com, they provide cloud-based software that ultimately digitizes and automates the, the back office financial operations for small and mid-sized businesses. Basically helps them just streamline payment operations, eliminate the paperwork, right? And bring it all into the digital age here. And, and again, much like Lemonade, uh, the key ingredient of Bill.com's special sauce is they, as they say it, it's, it's their AI-driven platform. Uh, so, so the more data, uh, the smarter it gets, the more customers they bring into the network, it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in, in, a, in a sense there. Um, and I think it was really just encouraging that the numbers that they that they uh, reported here for the most recent quarter. Revenue was up 38%. Subscription revenue was up 33%. Transaction revenue was up 98%. Payment volume up 40%. Total number of transactions were up 11%. Customer growth of 27%. But here's the kicker. They were guiding for 32% revenue growth in this current quarter now. And so add all of that together, and, and yes, Bill.com is still not profitable. It's one of those high flyers that has a lot of potential, but it hasn't brought it all down to the bottom line yet. Um, but that's that's no secret. That's no surprise. I mean, we understand that's kind of where this business is right now. Um, I, I, I definitely am understanding uh, the market's enthusiasm there. And I was looking through the call and just a couple of additional points. Uh, they they're they're capitalizing on the cross border opportunity, which we've seen across all all of uh, all of the fintech space here lately. That talk of cross border, and we'll talk a little bit more about cross border here when we get to uh, to our, our next uh, story here. But but that cross border opportunity continues to be a tremendous a uh, tremendous one. And then I thought it was really cool to see that they now have white label offerings. So this is basically like these they're providing the technology for these bigger customers to basically build on. And they've got this white label offerings now with the top three banks in the U.S., J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and your stock for 2021, Wells Fargo. And Wells Fargo is having a pretty good uh, past couple of weeks too here. You didn't think they just launched a, a new joint venture with Wells Fargo, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple points that I would kind of add to what you said about Bill. Yes, they're losing money, but they're losing less. 
So let's put that in perspective. They lost uh, $2.7 million on an adjusted basis for the quarter. That's about half what they lost a year ago. Um, they raised a lot of capital this quarter. They raised $1.15 billion. Guess what interest rate they're paying? Oh, it's got to be next to nothing. It is nothing. It's zero because <laughs> they did it as convertible debt. There you go. Um, so it's like you know the market has a huge appetite for, for future growth in tech. So they're able to raise capital at no interest, which is pretty remarkable. So I said they, they lost $2.7 million for the quarter. They got $1.7 billion in the bank. <laughs> they're not really that worried about the $2.7 billion loss. No, so no I, not at all. I took a listen to our show in May when we first talked about Bill.com. You remember what the IPO price was? <laughs> um, I, It's escaping me, but I feel like it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like $30, $35 maybe? 20, 22 Yeah, yeah. Um, so at that time they had 91,000 customers. They grew that, as you mentioned, by 27% year over year. They have 109,000 customers right now. There are 20 million small and medium sized businesses in the USA. So that's still a lot of growth runway. Um, it, it's really just been an impressive run since that time. And that was in May. That wasn't even a year ago. This was, uh, they, they estimate their addressable market at $30 billion in size. Um, their their uh, last four quarters of revenue are still less than 185 million dollars, so they're they're just kind of scratching the surface here. It's a it's not a cheap stock. No, no, their, not their at market all. cap is almost 15 billion dollars right now. As I'm as I'm talking now, to be fair, I mean back in August we were saying even it's not a cheap stock at 80 90 dollars. It's know, not, it's, but they're they're beating expectations, and so now are. it's even less of a cheap stock. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a difficult one really to square sometimes. Uh, I mean, it, you, you you look at some of these stocks and you say, wow, they look so expensive, but the market is, is just willing to give some of these businesses a little bit more wiggle room when they when they prove to really be onto something. And I guess, it, I mean, it really does seem like Bill.com is onto something, particularly when you see that they're able to form those relationships and provide those white label services to such big financial institutions. Yeah, and I mean, they're, they're disrupting an, an industry that really wasn't very disrupted. If you remember when we first covered them in May, we said that, that or um, Bill.com said that 90% of small and medium-sized businesses in the U.S. still use paper checks in some capacity. Oh, yeah, yeah, Whether absolutely. it comes to paying bills or, pay, or paying their employees or whatever, they still use paper checks for some part of their business. So it's kind of like Lemonade, where it's like, it's a, it's like a first disruptor's advantage. And the more data and more network they build, the better they're the more that that advantage becomes. So it's both of them are, they're very different companies, obviously, but they've kind of had some similar, similar growth tailwinds going on. Yep. And and definitely um, playing in that same AI uh, opportunity as well. I mean, AI being a key driver for the success of these businesses, I, I would imagine that'll, that'll continue. I mean, that's, that's management teams see that they know it's working i mean you, you double down on the things that are working at least smart management teams do and it it seems like these these uh teams at, at lemonade and bill.com are doing just that um matt we have another spac offering in the mix here Imagine i can't believe that. this it seems like yeah <laughs> i tell you it's just it's another day another spac right um and, and this time it is for a company we're talking about that cross uh that 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 uh that that cross-border opportunity, and, and uh, this particular company that is going 
to go public via SPAC is one that may not be very familiar with a lot of folks. I, I hadn't really looked much into it, but it's, I mean, it's an interesting looking business. I'm just not really sure what to make of it yet, but pay an ear. Um, I know you've done some digging into this company. Tell us what you found. Yeah, well, I'm first about the SPAC, it's being uh, taken public by a company called FTAC Olympus Acquisition. That's a, quite a mouthful, but uh, it's Betsy Cohen's SPAC. She is a kind of a financial sector, you know, a heavyweight there. She's uh, she founded Jefferson Bank. Uh, she founded the Bank Corp, which is a, a big. Uh, it's a kind of commercial, a branchless commercial bank, really kind of innovative uh, platform there. And this is her fourth SPAC she's taken public. So we're getting. She she was in on SPACs before it was fashionable. So we actually have some kind of a track record, which is really rare in the SPAC world. Um, just to kind of run through the the three previous ones, she took public Card Connect in 2015, which ended up being acquired by First Data. So shareholders made a good bit of money on that one. The second one was a company called International Money Express, which still trades publicly. That was in 2017. It's up about 60% from the SPAC's IPO price. Um, and then Paya or Paya, I'm not sure exactly how it's pronounced just because I was reading it, um, was taken public in 2019. And they're up about 40% from the, the SPAC's IPO price. So she's got a pretty good track record. So this is number four. So now getting to Payoneer, I'm not I'm not a customer of Payoneer, but they they specialize in cross border transfers. Um, they had forty four billion dollars flow through their network last year. Um, they're pretty big. Their customers include companies like Walmart, Airbnb, Amazon, uh, Google. These companies use Payoneer to send money all over the world. Um, Payoneer, like a good application would be if you're an advertiser and you're advertising somewhere that's not your home country, you would use something like Payoneer to send the money to its end uh, end destination. So they were founded 15 years ago. Um, they're, the company's being valued at $3.3 billion in this deal. Um, over a billion of that is the money is new money. Uh, the SPAC raised over $800 million dollars. There's a $300 million private investment coming alongside of it. So this company will have a good bit of cash to work with to grow. That's really one thing I, I, I like about the SPAC model is because it gives these companies a huge windfall of cash. And that's more than Payoneer would likely get through a traditional IPO process. Usually you don't sell like, you know, you don't increase your share count by 50% in an IPO to, to raise capital. But that's really what they're doing here. They're valued at $3.3 billion and $1.1 billion is new cash. Um, so they're, it's a lot of ammo to grow with. Um, they're, they're pioneers, um, their mission is to democratize access to financial services, which you know in cross-border is something that is sorely needed. So it's, it's an interesting, um, interesting spec. And I like the uh, pioneers management is going to remain in place. But I, one of the good parts about the SPAC combinations is you can kind of leverage the other person's or the other party's experience and other connections, which Betsy Cohen has a ton of. Um, so I, I like this arrangement. I think it's a, a huge amount of cash for a, a company like Payoneer to grow with. And I'm curious to see what they do with it in the years ahead. Well, that'll be one we certainly keep up with here on the show as it goes public. And um, who knows, you know, maybe that'll be one we will uh, consider featuring in our SPAC series that we have coming up here later on here on Industry Focus after earnings season's over, of course. But we're going to jump into uh, jump into some of these SPACs, talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, 
everything else in between. But uh, before we get there, Matt, uh, listen, I mean, we were talking about this at the beginning of the show, GameStop and um, short squeezes and stuff like that. It's, it's short squeezes have taken front and center of the conversation here lately with everything that's been going on with Reddit and GameStop and, and AMC. It's it's been it's been a fascinating time. It really, I think, shows the the power of network effects from a different angle, right? I mean, this this shows the power of network effects and how how we're always looking at network effects as a potential competitive advantage for our investments. But this shows how investment or network effects can be an advantage for investors. And um, you know, in this case, it's it's had a material impact on a couple of companies in GameStop and AMC. Now, you've done some digging into the financial space, however. And you found some companies in our space with some pretty high short interest. Uh, so I want to get into that. Before we do, real quickly, just remind our listeners, for those who aren't familiar, remind our listeners what a short squeeze is. All right. So first of all, short interest, it's a measure of the, the a company shares that are currently sold short as a percentage of the float. The float means all of the shares that are available to trade. There are a lot of shares in, in a lot of companies that are not available for trade. Like, like some owned by insiders and, and things like that that can't be readily transacted. So a, if, if a company has you know 10,000 or 10 million shares in its float and 5 million are sold short, that would be a short interest of 50%. So a short and that, would, that would be a lot too. I mean, that's a lot. Yes. Yeah, so that would yeah. be, I generally consider anything over 10% to be elevated short interest. There's no set in stone rule. That's just kind of my own rule of thumb. If I see a double digit short interest, that means a lot of people are betting the other way. So a short squeeze generally occurs in a, it, I mean, there's a million different ways it can occur and no one ever seen anything like the Reddit squeeze before, but there's generally a few different steps that these happen in and, and there, this is no exception to this situation. So step number one, a lot of people bet against the stock. Usually when you see a big short interest, it means big investors are betting against it, like hedge funds. So for whatever reason, they're betting against it. Normally it's a, a legitimate reason. They think it's overvalued. They think... Um, you know, the business is going to be in decline, something like in AMC's case that, would, you know, they thought people might not go see movies anymore. Um, GameStop, a lot of hedge funds thought that no one's going to buy video games in stores anymore, and they have a point. So uh, for whatever one reason or another, a lot of people are betting against the stock. Number two, some event happens where a lot of buyers flood into the stock. That could mean a lot of people on a Reddit thread kind of ganging up. That could mean actual good news for the company, like when AMC said that they were avoiding bankruptcy. That was actually good news. Um, so there, or, or you know, the COVID vaccine uh, came out. That, or that a good created, a good earnings report, even sure a good yeah. earnings report. The uh, the vaccine news created a short squeeze in a lot of the real estate stocks we we cover um, when people realized that the pandemic wasn't going to last forever. Um, so some good event happens that leads buyers to to flood in. The people who have it sold short are seeing their positions really decline in value or, or the amount they owe to cover those shorts is really getting high. So either by choice or by force, you know, if, it get, if the losses get too bad, a broker will force them to cover. You'll see, a lot of, you'll see a lot of these big investors start to buy shares to cover their shorts, which in turn creates even more upward pressure on the stocks. And you just kind of see this cascading domino effect which is how a short squeeze pushed a stock like GameStop, whose business is not worth anything close to three, four hundred dollars a share. <laughs> yeah, it's how it pushed that stock from two dollars a share to over four hundred dollars a share in just a few days. It's because of that kind of domino effect of you know one short seller is forced to cover, 
covering a short involves buying shares. So that push that adds more pressure and puts the price higher. So the, the next short that really was holding out has to cover and so on and so on. Um, I mean, sh- people, the short sellers, not people, hedge funds lost billions of dollars on those shorts. So that's the basics of how a short squeeze works. And we'll get into some of the the financials and real estate in a, in a, a minute. But um, again, uh, anything over 10%, I consider to be a relatively high short interest. In GameStop's case, it was well over 100%, which is why that short squeeze got so bad. Yeah. And I mean, that people say like, well, how could it be over 100%? Well, I mean, that's just essentially the power of leverage. That's like just, just essentially the way you would borrow more money than you have. I mean, it's just, it's the power of leverage, <laughs> borrowing to short more. And then all of a sudden you see this buying. And I mean, that's just economics 101, right? I mean, that demand, it's just supply and demand. That that demand continues to push that price up and up, and it just continues to create more demand to buy more and more, which keeps pushing that price up and up and up. And what you got to be really careful of in many cases, particularly with these these companies when they have really high short interests, and you'll, say, you'll see that metric days to cover. And that's essentially based on volume, based on average volumes, how many days of that buying activity it's going to take to actually get all of that short interest covered. So then you can kind of start to quantify how long <laughs> how long that pain might last if you're short. <laughs> and, I, you know, for me personally, and, and if folks have asked me before, and I mean, just as an individual investor, to me, shorting just seems like a lot of work for really not a lot of reward, right? I mean, I like to say the juice just didn't worth the squeeze because in theory, the most you can make is 100% on your investment. You can lose. You can lose just essentially that the losses could could in theory not stop until you close that short out. I mean, you could lose well over 100% of your money. So for me, it just seemed like an awful lot of work for not a lot of return, and and that's why I never bothered with it. I don't think I ever will bother with it. I'm not sure if uh, I'm not sure how you approach shorting if you see it the same way, or if you make shorting a part of your investment strategy. Do you? I have never directly shorted a stock. I've cre- I've used options positions to kind of, you know, bet against the stock continuing to go up. Um, but it and the the reason options are so much better is because it, like you said when you short a stock your loss potential is unlimited options really limit your losses the most you can lose is kind of the cost of the option yeah you buy a put contract you know what right. you paid for it and then that's that if it works great if not well you know what you you know what you're risking right so i've done that but i i've never actually shorted but a lot of people do it's in um Want to hear some of the financials and real estate stocks? Well, yeah, let's get into that because there's there are some interesting names here in, in the financials and real estate where you found these these stocks have over ten percent short interest. Now, let's be clear here for our listeners: we're not recommending that you go out and short these stocks or invest in these stocks in, in with the thesis of a short squeeze. This is informational only, but I, I still think it's interesting to know these names and in, in, in the uh, the level of short interest in these. So, yeah, let's kick that off. What about these financials that you found? So these are the financials. That- that investors are betting against. Uh, number one, and this is in descending order, number one is Rocket Mortgage. Uh, it's 37% short interest. 37% of the float is sold short right now. Uh, number two, Lemonade, our, <laughs> our, our favorite insurance uh, play right here, Twenty that over 22%. Familiar. 22, um, wow. Over 22% is sold short. And like I said, that, there could be a, a legitimate short case to be made. I mean, Lemonade's not a cheap stock. Um, just like Bill.com, they have a, a high valuation, so people might be betting against it. Um, one, one thing, one important lesson I learned in investing is if you can't understand the other case, you know, if you're a bull, if you can't understand the bear case of something, you haven't done enough research yet. So 
Um, number three is a company called Credit Acceptance, ticker symbol is CACC. They uh, provide financing for auto dealerships. They're the uh, subprime auto financer. Um, their short interest is about 19%. And number four is Voya Financial. I don't know if you're familiar with Voya, Jason. I'm not. Um, you remember a company called I- ING? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what ING turned into. Ah, okay, I got gotcha. you. Um, ING used to be a, a – where was it? Switzerland, I think it was It was based one, somewhere in Europe. I feel um, like that's right. They spun off their North American uh, operations into Voya. Um, so their investments, retirement uh, – remember, ING had a thing called ShareBuilder that was really popular. They were one of the original high-yield high savings accounts I online. I remember ShareBuilder very well, yeah. Yeah, so um, those still exist in, in one form or another under Voya's banner. Um, so all four of those are very heavily bet against. Uh, Rocket by far is number one. Um, yeah, that's that seems a bit. Yeah, I, wow, that's such a big market opportunity. Rocket seems to have such brand identity in that space. That seems to be a risky one. I mean, I feel like with valuation, I mean, you know, valuation is so squishy. It's so subjective. I mean, it's as much art as it is science. And then what's that old saying, right? The market can remain irrational much longer than you can remain solvent. That's absolutely true. And with with Rocket, my, my gut feeling is that the mortgage market, like we said last week, the mortgage market has been extraordinarily great over the past year. Interest rates were low. Everyone's refinancing. Everyone's buying houses. Home prices are, are going up. So maybe people are just betting that that's not going to last forever. Because um, all it would take is for interest rates to spike a little bit and refinancing volume would drop to zero. You would figure. <laughs> so, you would figure. Um, so that's that's the financial side of it. And we also cover real estate here. So we'll give you a couple of good real estate stocks that we've talked about before in a few cases. Um, number one is Maserich, uh, ticker symbol MAC. Um, they are a mall operator. They're a Simon competitor. Um not quite as well well to do financially as Simon is, which is why people are, seem to be betting against it. And Simon's not on the list. Um, number two is, or, and Masterich is fifty seven percent short interest, so that's the highest of all these. Uh, Tanger Factory Outlets is number two. Ticker symbol is SKT. Their short interest is fifty two point four percent right now, so more than half the float is sold short. People do not have a positive outlook on the outlet industry going forward, apparently. <laughs> apparently not. Um, number three is Seritage Growth Properties, which we've talked about. I can understand why people are betting against them. I'm a shareholder. Um, I under, I completely understand the other side of the coin in that one. It's a company that's lo- a, a REIT that's losing money, which is really rare. Um, you know, their, their whole business model is redevelopment, and that costs money. Um, so, the, you know... I always joke that they were designed to become a Sears Sears landlord, and even Sears didn't want to be own Sears properties at that point. So, <laughs> um, and number four, this one actually surprised me is Iron Mountain. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, the document IRM. management. The document management, but they're slowly and quietly getting into the data center space, which is the most promising side of the business from a long term perspective. But it's that legacy document storage business that. I think is scaring a lot of investors away, and there's a 17.5 percent. So a lot of a lot of people are bidding against some of these financial and real estate companies. So we saw uh, Tanger and Saratage and uh, Maserich; those were really short squeezed during the GameStop uh, thing. I mean, T- Tanger went up about 50 percent one day. It was it was a pretty uh, 
The short squeeze went beyond GameStop and AMC, I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Well, those are some really interesting names, and I mean, there's some compelling uh, <laughs> levels of shortages there. It was, uh, you know, it just didn't, just takes one little one little stream of good news. It can really, really stick it to you. So uh, you got to be careful in, in that line of work, I think. Uh, Matt, let's wrap up things here real quick this week with our ones to watch. What stock are you keeping your eye on this week? Uh, I am watching General Motors GM. I know this is the financial show, but I'm watching GM for a good reason. They really blew expectations out of the water for earnings last time in a in a in the third quarter when sales declined year over year. Um, we got their fourth quarter sales numbers, and they increased year over year, surprisingly, given what, given what was going on. Domestic deliveries increased five percent year over year in the fourth quarter, and the biggest growth was in their highest profit highest profit vehicles pickup trucks, full-size SUVs. Those are the ones that were growing at a double-digit rate. Um, GM, I've said before, is the only electric vehicle play I would buy right now. Um, They're investing heavily in electric vehicles. Their cruise automation um, subsidiary is a huge overlooked high-potential part of the business. And even after they're at an all-time high as I'm talking, I'm I'm looking at their stock price. They've like doubled in the past six months or so. Even after that, they trade for less than 10 times forward earnings. Yeah, just not a lot of credit. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the market's really not appreciating the potential of this company long term, and even in the near term. So, I'm, I'm watching them. I think their fourth quarter uh, earnings report is really going to surprise a lot of people. And I'm curious as to whatever comments they make about their electric vehicle ambitions. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that one. Um, I'm going to take a look at a firm. I'm going to be watching a firm ticker is AFRM. We've talked about a firm on the show here before, but uh, their earnings come out on Thursday after the market closes. This will be their first reported quarter as a publicly traded company. So just interesting to see how they're dealing with the life as a publicly traded company. And um, I'll also be interested to see if they have any, any sort of language regarding PayPal's most recent quarter here and PayPal really called out the buy now pay later market as as the the offering that surprised them the most to the upside they they've seen a real positive response to their buy now pay later offering and um, of course we know that that uh, a firm doesn't have nearly the size network that PayPal has but by the same token it appears to be a very uh, robust market opportunity so maybe there is something there for a firm uh, and also looking to see if they are able to bring that reliance on Peloton down uh, down a bit. I mean, they've uh, said before it was responsible for about 30% of their overall revenue. So hopefully, as that company continues to grow, that number will continue to come down and they'll be less reliant on one big customer. But we will learn more on Thursday. But Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to jump on and teach us about all of this good stuff. I learned just as much from you as you learned from me. <laughs> well, thanks, my man. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>